Yeah, you do it. We'll just get right into it, you know? Get right into this, man. Talking some dominant defenses right today, man. Probably the best one that's not remembered as they should be. Oh, well, we'll get into that. Like Like a shooting star, man. Just one season, they put it all together. Welcome, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dom DiTola, alongside my co-host, Chris Quinn. And today, we're going to get into a little Denver Broncos action. Yeah, I feel like we're talking Broncos all day today. It's going to be Broncos all day. Which I'm into. Yeah, it's a very special occasion. So I figure uh, we're going to do this for a very special person. And uh, some good stories are going to come out of this one. Definitely. I feel like I uh, dropped the ball on this one, though. I was going to bring a two liter of Orange Crush just to... Uh, just to have but i just have. I, I just didn't so just in case anybody's wondering where this is going we're going yep. into that 77 defense for the broncos yep nicknamed the orange crush there you go yep the era of disco dominant defenses and zero offensive rules that's the way the i like it yeah. yeah and this is actually the last year of the not only the 14 game schedule but also of the defenses actually having an advantage over offenses in the NFL before the 78 rule changes. Yeah, before we see quarterbacks essentially being protected as much as they could, before we see a bunch of stuff happening on the line. Yeah, linemen can extend their arms and then yeah. receivers can like not be murdered exactly. trying to run a pass route. It's like, what do you mean I can't clothesline this guy into hell? You're just like, oh, well. What do you mean he can walk after the play? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But anyway, we're going to get into uh, the 77 Denver Broncos. And uh, the most famous thing about this team, not only did they become AFC champions, but they had one of the most dominant defenses of all time. Yes. And the reason they were nicknamed the Orange Crush is not only would they crush the shit out of you, they were wearing the old Denver Bronco uniforms with the orange jerseys. Which and, I love. Oh, yeah. They were they were like that nice product of the old AFL because yeah. either the jerseys were really good or really bad. Exactly. Like and the Broncos' oldest jerseys with the striped socks. Exactly. That they, were... they burned in a bonfire that the city held. But it's one of these things where... It's an iconic jersey with this team. Like, that's the jersey that I always think of, you know? Oh, it totally is. So uh, before we get into the Broncos of 1977, I want to take a trip down memory lane to them being in the AFL and them being basically the redheaded stepchildren that were beaten on in the AFL for that decade-long period. AFL, you're not familiar? Go back and listen to our AFL-NFL merger podcast. It's pretty dope. Yeah, it explains it pretty well, but this is getting more into what a awful team the Broncos were. It was were. run so poorly. They ha- This is what no I love. No money. Yeah, and we brought it up in our a- AFL-NFL merger, but you just brought it up again. They were the worst team with the worst uniforms. So like teams would show up and make fun of them for yeah. the game and destroy It's them. like Bill Burr making fun of the Phillies. It's like, yes. yeah, well, your brown striped socks selling fucking popcorn in the instructional league. The Yankees won how many? <laughs> yeah, no, Bill but Burr. In... Uh, in their 10 years in the AFL, I went and did research on this. They had a league worst 44, 106, and 4 record. Wow. They That's finished, so bad. They finished last six times. In 1962, they had their only 500 season, a non losing season at 7 and 7, where they finished second. And they finished fourth or fifth two times and third out of fourth once. That was just horrible. I, I and, can't even imagine being one of their fans. And it's 
that's why they're so diehard. They were that's, the first yes. team ever in that city. Like if anybody says Denver is a Rockies town or even an avalanche town or even a Nuggets town, they are full of shit and did not grow up there and grow up there in this era where this team, as bad as they were, meant everything to that city because it made them a major league city. I was going to say it was their sport. first. Yeah, it was their it was their first real and like you were saying, it makes diehard fans to have this like literally 10 a decade of just losing. And it's not like they had bad players. I mean, Frank Trapuca, remember the guy we talked about in the AFL podcast, one yep. of the AFL's best quarterbacks. You know, you had Lionel Taylor at wide receiver. Marlon Briscoe was the first black quarterback and later a Super Bowl winner on those Miami Dolphins teams as a wide receiver. I was going to say, so they had good players. They just couldn't put it together for the life of them. Absolutely. And towards the end of the AFL, they finally uh, acquire probably a franchise favorite. He just made it into the Hall of Fame. Floyd Little, who was a running back, had a lot of success in the AFL and NFL. But it's like they're not winning and not putting anything together. It, it just... It's got to be so heartbreaking to go out every single year and them being like, well, we almost got to 500 this year. They were literally the franchise that the Chiefs, Raiders, Chargers, Patriots, what have you, kept in the basement and beat on and didn't see the light of day because they were gingers orange with no soul. Oh, I was just thinking about them being the gingers of the league, and they so are. It's so mean. It's mean, but God, was it true? I mean, between the bad uniforms and the bad play, but things started kind of turning around in 1973 after the merger, despite the Raiders being really good, the Chargers have fallen off. The Chiefs are old. So there's now a little bit of a window in the old AFC West yeah. to where Denver might be able to compete. And in 1973, John Ralston uh, comes in as their head coach. And he's a very important figure because he turns the franchise around. Because in 73, they go 7-5-2. And, and 73 is also important, which I'll get to when I discuss this defense. That kind of becomes the year where all of the young talent, they start bringing in on that side of the ball. They finally start accumulating... And these young players are developing into really, really good ones. Yeah, so they're picking up a lot of young defensive players in their draft, and they're shaping them into this defensive structure that we're, I feel like we're alluding to. Here. Yes, and in uh, 1973, 7, 5, and 2, and then in 74, they go 7, 6, and 1. Well, okay. they're not making the playoffs because they have yet to play in a postseason game by 1974. Yeah, It's like, okay, this team is starting to come together. They're missing a few pieces, but they're getting enough to where they're they're actually really good. Yeah. 75, they have kind of a down year at six and eight, but 76, they go nine and five and just barely miss the playoffs because 1977, I should add, is the last year of the four team playoff format. Yeah. So this is pre wild card, pre. Uh... Well, there's only one wild card because there are only three divisions and you get the one wild card in. So okay. nine, nine and five in a 14 game season is actually pretty darn good. I was going to say, yeah, that's not a bad season. And if you're a fan at this point, you're getting excited and you're definitely like throughout that season, you're like, oh shit, this is really turning into something. Oh, it totally is. But the problem is, is after 76, John Ralston retires which is kind of a blow to this franchise because he finally made them respectable. Yes. Like they're out of the basement. They're in the kitchen now, not getting a lot of sunlight, but they're out of the basement. And, and I think that's important. Well, I want to talk about this because there was talk about him kind of stepping down for various reasons. What, what yeah. were the ones that you heard? Because I kind of heard that they wanted him out. They did because he hadn't turned the corner. Because he, yes. It's like 
It's almost like when with uh, Dungy and the Buccaneers, how he completely yeah. turned them around, but they would just not break Make, through. Yes, and then they give up. You know that King's ransom to get uh, Gruden in there, and he spider two Y bananas their way to a Super Bowl in his first year. Warren but, Sapp had a great quote about that. He's like, first day of practice, I see Coach Gruden. I'm like, man, we give up two first round picks and all this other shit, and this is all we got. <laughs> yeah fuck i mean you, you really don't know until you know oh yeah but what uh but the, that switch the, at the head sometimes it really makes a difference it and it does because they bring back former offensive line coach red miller red miller is a rookie coach in 1977 and he has an ace in the hole because staying on that staff is the defensive coordinator Joe Collier. Yes. Joe Collier, for those of you who don't know, I remember in our AFL episode, we talked about how good those Bills defenses were when they went back to back for AFL titles. Yeah. Joe Collier was the linebackers coach and basically architect of those defenses. While he later became head coach for the Bills, he didn't do too well, and which that's why they drafted OJ Simpson. But in 69, I believe, he signs with Denver and is tasked with rebuilding their defense. And the interesting thing about Joe Collier is he doesn't run a defense like the rest of the NFL. Yeah. The NFL is a copycat league. And when Tom Landry kind of invented the four, three, and then later the flex defense, which he brought to Dallas, everybody was running four threes. And then in Pittsburgh, Chuck Knoll and um, his defensive staff basically invented the cover two, which is still a four, three defense, but it's built on four stout defensive linemen getting up the field and creating pressure so your back seven can zone out and even man cover and just umbrella the entire field. Joe Collier, on the other hand, has different plans. At the time, Denver was really the only team in the league, and Joe Collier basically invented this, the 3-4 yeah. defense. And this is important because it's a very different schematic defense than the 3-4 in that in this one, and the credit to Collier because he tailored it to all the players that were being drafted and on this defense, and the 3-4 basically has, you have three down linemen. Their job isn't to necessarily get up the field. Their job is to eat two gaps at once, and when they know where the play is going, pick the correct gap and then go through it. So unlike the 4-3, their job is more aligned to pretty much eat up the other linemen. It is. As opposed to like break it and put pressure straight on the quarterback. Precisely, which is where your linebackers come into play. Yep. The linebackers in the uh, 4-3, they're more designed for pass coverage and flowing to the ball, running it with speed, having one appropriate gap to go through and doing that. And they're going to make your tackles. On. They're the big stat guys. Yeah. The guys in the three, four on the defensive line, they do all the dirty work. They hold up the blockers. So the linebackers can just get after it. Yeah. And that, that was definitely what I found researching. I'm, I'm definitely not as into football, but I've been getting way, way more into it. But they kept saying that the linemen have to be almost like the most unselfish players on your team. They are. And when you look at famous three, four teams recently, the Steelers come to mind with guys like Casey Hampton and Aaron Smith and Brett Kiesel. They have to be unselfish and they have to be tough SOBs yeah. and not care that they're not getting stats. Yes. And this leads me to the linebackers. And this linebacking core was amazing because yes. you had Randy Gratishar, who should be in the Hall of Fame. That was the thing that I saw immediately when I clicked on him. There's like, we're trying to get this guy in the Hall of Fame because, I mean, look at these stats. But that's the stuff I love is... 
we see these linebackers are really, really come to the forefront of this defense and become stars. Yeah, and then you have Bob Swenson, who was an undrafted free agent out of Cal. Oh, that's awesome. And then you have Tom Jackson, Jackson, most famously for NFL primetime, but a hell of an outside linebacker. All these guys were quick, and that's what you need in this specific scheme. And then uh, Joe Rizzo basically. Yeah. So you have these four guys patrolling and making all the plays and really putting that crush in the orange crush because up front you have unselfish players like Barty Chavis, Reuben Carter at the nose and the insane but amazing Lyle Alzado. I mean, you just have toughness and beef up front, which basically allows not only your linebackers to do well, but even your secondary just to become ball hawks because of all the pressure and different looks that's being created. So like their secondary, they had a young Louis Wright, Steve Foley at the corner, and then Bill Thompson, who was the old man of that defense. He was still drafted by them in the old AFL. Yeah, I saw that about old Billy Thompson. He was like in his, he was like 30 when everybody else, because this was a really young defense. I had wrote it down. This is actually very interesting. Seven of the 11 guys were drafted or undrafted free agents by the team. 10 of the 11 were under 30. And eight of the 11 came to the team 1973 and afterwards when they were acquired. Yeah. So, I mean, they pretty, they straight up molded this defense. Yeah. And Collier, to his credit, like he tried to experiment maybe with a 4 3 at the beginning, but he's like, I think I can do something different. And he definitely did because they were a turnover machine that year. Yes. They yes. were just outstanding. As far as, inter- and, as far as interceptions, Thompson had five. Jackson had four. Wright, Gratishar, Foley, and Rizzo, they all had three. Freaking uh, Swenson and uh, Jackson each had one apiece. I mean, that defense was something nobody had seen and was just scaring people because it had finally gelled. And you're coming off a nine and five season, so you're no chopped liver. You're going to be in the mix, even though the AFC in '77 was super competitive. Yeah. Well, this is the thing that I feel like what you were harping on earlier is that it's a copycat league, and somebody finally breaks through the door, and they're like, "Oh, we can do that," and then we start seeing other teams kind of do this. Oh, totally. No, down down the line, and this was this season in particular. Yeah. They had five Pro Bowlers just on that side of the ball. Their offense had none. Yeah, I know. That's the thing is. Their offense had zero, but four of them were first-team All-Pros with Gratishar, um, Thompson, Jackson, and Alzado, and Louie yeah. Wright was a second-team All-Pro. That's incredible. Yeah, they were definitely the greatest defense of that year. But they do need a little bit of help because even though you're 9-5 and five and you have all these young players rallying to the ball and kicking ass, you've gone 17 years in your franchise's history without making the playoffs. Which is so sad. Like, you're that redheaded stepchild. You're in the kitchen. You're ready to open that door and go out into a society that doesn't like you, like with the Raiders and Colts and Steelers. But no, you're ready. Because that offseason, they're able to acquire a veteran quarterback. Yes. And while he's not a Hall of Famer, he was still a very steady, solid veteran quarterback who had played well in the league. He had taken a team to a Super Bowl. If it wasn't for Roger Staubach, Craig Morton, formerly of the Dallas Cowboys, would have probably still been starting for Dallas. Yeah. He was less reckless than Staubach. Landry liked that. The problem was, when the chips were all down, Staubach was winning games and the important games. Morton wasn't. He was well, performing. I feel like we see that. 
Yeah. <laughs> and in 75 and 76, what happens is, or um, Morton goes to the New York Giants in a horrible trade made by the Giants, by the way. They gave ended up giving away, I think, the first or second pick in the 75 draft to Dallas. Damn. And what ended up happening was Morton has two god-awful seasons with the Giants. Just two god-awful seasons. The fans hate him. He falls out of love with football. But Denver needs a quarterback and just somebody to run an offense with not like a lot of stars, but does have some young and emerging talent. Just somebody to hold it down and not make mistakes. So they acquire Craig Morton. I was going to say, you want a guy that understands game strategy because your defense is really your star. You don't want a guy who's going to essentially try and take the game over himself you want a guy who's gonna understand what it is to win a game and it's a it's a very very smart strategy by them because yeah. they're like look our defense is going to carry us we know exactly that. that's what they're going to rely make mistakes. on mistakes and yeah. morton throws for a modest over 1900 pass yards 19 touchdowns only eight interceptions but as for rushing touchdowns, so he's just piloting an offense they don't have a star running back they no. have a group of like five running backs on their team it's absolutely crazy. Well, that's what you want from this quarterback. You're like, we want our defense to be the star, not their defense. So don't turn the ball over and we'll win. Yeah, we just want to move the ball yep. and get, get things done. They had three guys on their team with over 100 rushing attempts with Otis Armstrong, Lonnie Perrin, and uh, Rob Lytle. And then you also had uh, Jim Jensen as well pitching in uh, on the back end. So they're pretty much just... It's a rotation on the running back. It is. It's a running back by committee with this team. Yeah. It, it, it really was throughout this era. And honestly, they really didn't have a dominant running back on their team from basically the time Floyd Little left. Okay. Until about Bobby Humphrey in the late 80s. And he didn't last very long because of contract issues. Yeah. But what you see, you also have, because this is the era of the NFL too, where the deep ball matters more. And they're lucky enough to have some solid pass, pass catchers in a Haven Moses, in a speedy young Rick Upchurch, in a good tight end with Riley Odoms, and a good wide receiver, Jack Dolben. So, I mean, their offense is solid. Just don't make mistakes and let Joe Collier and the Orange Crush figure this out. Well, I feel like this is something that uh, some people don't necessarily understand with the NFL is... It really all comes back to defense. It does because it, it more so than I ever thought growing up. Yep. Because it is so ridiculous how defenses take teams to Super Bowls, and then you see a quarterback like have maybe a good game, mm -hmm. Tom Brady, and then <laughs> they pretty much people are like, "Oh my God, he's the goat!" But I feel like every single time it's like that defense that year took that team there, and he kind of just you well, know what I mean, piloted an offense exactly. Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here, and uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. And in this era, this is the era for it because you don't have the offensive rule changes yet. Yes, exactly. Because what everyone was doing outside of Denver was trying to copy Tom Landry, but nobody could run the flex, but you're still running a 4-3. Yeah. But then copying Pittsburgh, the Broncos said, Oh, we got something new for you bitches. And that's what they did. And that year, they started off the season absolutely incredibly. Well, it's so bold for them to do that 
to for them to just be like every everybody's doing this four three. We're literally going to do the three four. Like I I love it. It's yeah, one of these and you have moments go- in sports that just changes it forever. And it's the linebackers. It's Gratishar. It's, it's Jim Rizzo. Yeah. It's Tommy Jackson and Bob Swenson just leading the charge for them. And they start the season off really interestingly yeah. at Mile High. They're playing the St. Louis Cardinals, not baseball. But what a lot of people forget is like in the mid-70s when Don Coriel was their coach, their offense was loaded with Jim Hart, um, Jim Otis, uh, Terry Metcalf was on that those teams, Mel Gray. I mean, they were electric. Dan Deardorff and Conrad Dolber up front. Denver wins opening game, wins the opening game against the Cardinals 7 to zero which sets the tone for the whole season i was just gonna say that the the shutout is such an amazing thing in football that it literally like you said it sets the tone they literally couldn't even get in field goal range i mean i wonder if they kicked one and missed but it's so ridiculous and i mean this is a team and this is how this is this speaks to how dominant defenses were of this era denver finished third in the league in points per game do you know how many points per game they gave up that year 10.6. 10.6. I was going to say it's they were first in rushing yards against. They had 25 interceptions in 14 regular season games. Okay? 29 total turnovers. First against the run as I said. Do you want to hear an even more incredible stat for this defense? Of course I do. In 14 in regular season games, they gave up 16 touchdowns. It's so insane. I don't even care how dominant defensively you are in this era. That is mind-boggling. Almost, a- they literally are almost averaging a touchdown, giving up a touchdown a game. It- it's, uh, uh, yeah. But as, as one point two touchdowns a game, it- that's absolutely crazy. It's it's complete dominance is what it is. Yeah, they're it really doing is. everything differently than everybody else. It really is complete dominance, and like you were saying, I wonder if it's almost more so that teams have never seen this, so they can't scheme against it. But it's. It's still talent. It's talent. It's still and talent. Somebody, yeah. like a, somebody like a Gratishar I wanted to bring up. He was like, a lot of these guys who are acquired on this defense are either cast-offs or mid-to-late-round picks and or even undrafted free agents like Swenson. However, Gratishar was a first-round pick for them. Yeah. He was a first-round. He finished sixth in the Heisman voting in Ohio State at Ohio State his senior year. For a defensive player, that's incredible. Yes. But the thing about Gratishar that I always found interesting is he was as good, if not better, than Jack Lambert. And everyone knew that. And anyone knew that who played against him. He just didn't have the publicity or the headhunting mentality of him. But he was just as tough of a player. Walter Payton had a great quote. Dan Hampton had asked him later in his career, who gave you the hardest hit in the NFL? And Payton immediately answered like it was just off the top of his head. He's like, Randy Gratishart, 1978. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And Walter Payton is one of the toughest, if not the toughest, football player in NFL history. Yeah. But, yeah, he was their first-round pick in 74. He was like kind of the golden child of that defense, and he played like it because not only could he rush the passer, not only could he play the run, he was incredible in coverage in that 3-4 defense. Yeah. He played on the inside because earlier in his career they were running a 4-3 and out of middle linebacker. They moved him to inside linebacker. Lighting up as a right inside linebacker on the almost opposite hash as the tight end when you're running tight right, he was tasked with pass coverage of the tight end when he went up the seam. To have that speed, a lot of writers and a lot of you know former players of that era said there were only two guys in the league who could do that. 
Jack Lambert and Randy Gratishar. That's and, yeah. Yeah. And well, it, like you were saying, well, what you said was like the speed, but I feel like a lot of it comes into his football intelligence because you have to understand every play right away. He was one of the smartest players of that era and one of the smartest linebackers, I would say, in NFL history. I was like, going to say, because like if that tight end is open in that middle seam, he's just gone. So like, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. I, I'd never really thought of because like you were saying, when now we have four uh linebackers so like he's a he's a middle insider and as opposed to just a middle this is the orange crush this is what teams fear this is what teams don't want to face it's different. yeah i love that it's new and even though the afc is really good that year denver keeps reeling them off and i wanted to bring up probably their most important game of the season they go to oakland i was gonna say oakland is the defending super bowl champions with Kansas City getting old in the early 70s, Oakland is dominating that division. But they roll into Oakland after giving up an early touchdown. So they're down 7-0. to zero. They reel off not only 30 unanswered points, they accumulate eight turnovers in that game alone against Kenny Stabler, who just won the league MVP. And a lot of people were saying that Oakland... Hurts. Won the Super Bowl, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, Oakland was the best team... Um, in the NFL that year, they thought that they could go back to back. Oh, easily. Yeah. Everyone thought that they were hot shit, but Denver wins 30 to seven. And it, there's a great play in that game, almost salt in the wounds. Cause like now the redheaded stepchild is in the neighborhood. Yeah. No shit. Now he's here. Now and he's now here he's and he's ready <laughs> to unleash all of his, uh, fucking Opie Taylor rage on you. And the Orange Crush does, but there's a play where they call a fake field goal. Oh, I love this where, Jim Turner is an old man at this point. He's their kicker. He was the kicker for the Jets when they won Super Bowl three almost a decade prior. Yeah. They run a fake field goal, and he's standing there wide open and just catches a touchdown pass, which is just like middle fingers to the Raiders. I, the Denver-Oakland rivalry, much like Kansas City-Oakland, San Diego-slash-Los Angeles-Oakland, none of the teams like each other in that division. Like Denver doesn't like Kansas City. Denver exactly. doesn't like them, uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, and vice versa. But they all agree on one thing. Everybody hates the Raiders. Yes. I went to a game in 1997 with my dad at Old Mile High. And we're walking in uh, into the South Stands, which is like the rowdiest part. And it's snowing. They're playing Carolina, I think. And mind you, Den this is the year Denver wins their first Super Bowl. Okay. They start the year, I believe, like 7-0, and but they lose. Their first loss of the year is in Oakland. It's This game is maybe like two or three weeks later than that Oakland game. And as we're getting into the stadium, we just hear this chant, and we can't figure out what it is. And as we're walking in, they're playing Carolina, and the entire crowd is chanting, Raiders suck, Raiders suck, Raiders suck. So, I mean, this is that was... That the mentality. The mentality. And it's been that way since the entire league started. And I'm sure Oakland being good after Al Davis taking over in the old AFL when they started actually beating people yep. and doing it in typical Oakland uh, fashion or Los Angeles or Las Vegas, whatever. The league's vagabonds for all I care. But Well, the Raiders are. That's what yeah. they are. And, and like you were saying with the redheaded stepchild, it 
keeps we keep bringing it back, but it's so accurate with the way Denver went through the league that these wins in 77 mean so much. And I wanted to bring this up because they start out undefeated. They have another game in between, but then they lose to Oakland at home. Oh, okay. That was their first loss of the season. But do you know what they do? They don't go back into the basement. They start beating the AFC's best. They beat Pittsburgh at home, who won their division. They beat Burt Jones. Good episode, by the way. And the Baltimore Colts in another game. When Burt Jones is just lighting things up and making Bill Belichick's pants tight as an offensive uh, or a defensive uh, quality control coach or whatever the fuck he was. He was just getting footballs. Yeah, but they go into the last week of the regular season not only as AFC West champions, They have the number one seed in the AFC by virtue of not only beating Oakland in their division, but by beating Pittsburgh in a down year and Baltimore, who... I'm sorry, that was one of my favorite little... is Pittsburgh in a down year. It was a down... They were 9-5. and They Uh, barely won their division. Come on, Steeler fans. Cincinnati and Houston were doing pretty well at that juncture. Uh, But I just want to point out that preseason they were looked at as a good team they went nine and five the season yeah, before no and every no nobody thought that they were going to beat all of these teams no and we talked about in our burt jones episode they had been to the playoffs two straight years yeah granted they got the shit beat out of them but you still have burt jones and everything is still coming together they're yeah. a quality football team this could be and it turned out to be the end of their run in 77 yeah. and we'll get into that playoff game shortly but Denver enters as the number one seed. Granted, they lose their last regular season game. They only give up 14 points, but still lose to Dallas. But they finally make the playoffs. And they finally make the playoffs because of this incredible defense. Yes. So they go 12-2. and two. They go 12-2. and two. A lot of people thought they should have went 13-1, and one, but they lose, to, they lose to Dallas in this last game. And this will be brought back because... Yeah, well, we'll get into that... It's a little rough, but you oddity, know. but they're in the playoffs. The city's going nuts. It's Bronco Mania. That's I, I what bet. everyone refers to it as. The entire crowd is clad in orange. I mean, city's rocking. And they play their first playoff game that year on Christmas Eve, nineteen seventy seven. And That's I, awesome. I want to bring this up because my dad was home for winter break from college at the time. Oh, you yeah. I remember. Right. He got to go to this game. And later, the AFC Championship game. Wow, that's oh man! The first two Bronco playoff games ever played, and they draw because there's only four teams that make the playoffs. And you and I believe the rule was, and I could be wrong, but I believe the rule was you couldn't play a wild card team from your own division in the first round. Okay, so Oakland has to go to Baltimore. And we discussed in the Burt Jones episode, you can go back and listen to it. I won't get into it because this is a Bronco episode, the ghost to the post game, which basically even over Elway spurning them, in my opinion, ends professional football for the Colts in Baltimore. Breaks their hearts, double overtime loss. Dave Casper, great tight end. He'll come back in the AFC Championship game. Makes an incredible over-the-shoulder catch like a center fielder to set up the game-winning field goal. Well, and then we see football's not in Baltimore for... Many a decades. Yeah, about a decade and a half. Yeah. But uh, anyway, Denver plays a pretty good Steelers team. And people are kind of talking like, oh, they're a flash in the pan. And that was kind of the attitude all year. They're like, where did this team come from? And it's like, well, they've been slowly getting better. They got that nice little spark. They got Craig Morton. And they got the most badass bitch defense in the entire league. Well, that's the thing that really I feel like turned the corner was their defense outplayed everybody else because – 
everybody could see their offense really wasn't shit. I mean, they were fine, but they weren't. Their like offense these... was efficient. Yes. And I'd like to bring that up. And everyone always, you know, and this is an Orange Crush episode because this is what this team is known yep. for. But I just want to give credit to the offense and a really, really good offensive line, guys like Tom Glassick and Paul Howard on it. They got the job done. Yeah, no, they're they a good team. They got the job done and what was needed. But they didn't have those stars like we were talking about, like with a Burt Jones or like these other players. Staubach, you know what I mean? Like, And Craig Morton rediscovered football, the love for football. That's he was more the 77 what it was. AFC yeah. Comeback Player of the Year. Oh, was yeah. he as good as these quarterbacks he's beating? No, but he didn't need to be. Yes. He just needed to be the motherfucker in charge that said, Let's put 20 up on the board and let the defense eat. And that's what I love about him. And in the game against Pittsburgh, the game's tied at halftime. It's 14 to 14. So, I mean, it's a close game. Pittsburgh's showing the heart of champions. Franco Harris, even though he's held under 100 yards, still has a pretty good day. Johnny Stallworth really comes into his own, and you'll see with the later Steelers teams, oh, we can pass now and have two Hall of Fame wide receivers and a Hall of Fame quarterback. Yeah, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> but... uh Denver really turns it on in uh, in the fourth quarter because it's tied 21 to 21 going into it. Yep. Tom Jackson comes to play in that fourth quarter. He has two interceptions in it. And Denver, although they can't get the ball into the end zone, they're up 27 to 21. After the second Jackson interception, this is what I love and this is where I want to give credit to the offense is look at what the defense just did for us again. Yeah. Look at how they bailed us out. We're still ahead. We could sit on the ball, but they didn't. They didn't sit on the ball. Freaking Morton throws a touchdown pass to Jack Dolbin 34 yards when they could have sat on it to go up 34 to 21. And and it ices the entire ice the game. game. Yeah, exactly. And that's the big thing is I bet the defense were at that point were just like, oh, thank God we don't have to do this. Oh, exactly. It's like, oh. Yay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's such a turnaround for them. But they, they slayed the first beast. Yeah. Because Pittsburgh had won 74 and 75. They're done. They're gone. Which sets up the rubber match game against the Raiders. Yeah. Very rarely do you see teams meeting more than three times in a season. Yeah. And that only happens when you play a team in your division. Oakland's the wild card. Wild card, bitches. But they got to go play in Denver. And if you thought people were excited about beating Pittsburgh, getting another crack at Oakland back in Denver after losing to them earlier in the year is probably something everybody wanted. I mean, I can't imagine the feeling of getting Oakland back. And then because of this rivalry, like we were talking about, like how everybody hates the Raiders. Like literally every team in this division just wants them to lose. Yeah, no, nobody, nobody likes them. Nobody likes them. They're, they're, they're hated. They're hated, the Raiders. And uh, in the game, despite uh, going down 3-0, to zero, Denver's defense knocks Fred Bolitnikoff out of the game. Yeah, I saw that. Foley was... just levels him uh, from his cornerback position. And that's a huge blow to Oakland. Stabler is kind of banged up. And then Morton makes an incredible throw, gets all the time in the world, and drops this one to Moses. 
and he makes this he makes one juke kind of and then just goes up the sidelines and cuts to the middle of the field for a 74 yard touchdown and that just ignites the crowd oh yeah that brings all the momentum back and these teams are playing it kind of close to the vest you know they both know each other very well you know nothing don't let the cat out of the bag too early but Denver really lucks out with a play. It's actually very controversial. Um, one of their number numerous running backs, uh, John Keyworth, ends up scoring a touchdown to make it 14 to three. The problem is the play earlier on the drive at the goal line, Rob Lytle fumbles the ball. Yeah. And while there's Raider paranoia over things like the tuck rule or the immaculate reception, you could put this one in that category. He fumbled the ball. What the refs did, however, on this play, whether it's because they hate Al Davis or they weren't paying attention or just not wanting to finish the play, they call his forward progress stopped before he fumbled. Very controversial, but Denver takes advantage. John Keyworth scores a touchdown, and it's 14-3. to Yeah, so essentially it's a missed call. Um, it should have been a fumble. It should have been Raiders ball or, yeah. you know. Yeah, it should have. At, it, at worst, it should have been Raiders ball at like the one-and-a-half-yard line. Yeah. The it probably still sticks in the craw of Raiders fans, although it's probably further down the list because yeah. it's not the immaculate reception or the tuck rule bullshit. Yeah, they definitely have some on their on their uh, list of sh- just stuff to complain about. I mean, it's awful. But, but. De- Denver's kick- kicking ass on defense yes. again. They're making Stabler very uncomfortable. His best wide receiver, not named Cliff Branch, is out of the game, but. Like they do, as champions do, the Raiders rally, and Dave Casper ends up breaking free kind of in the fourth quarter and going off, much like he did against uh, Baltimore the previous week. Yeah. And he scores a touchdown to make it 14-10, to 10, and it's kind of a back and forth for a little bit. And then Denver keyed by a great, great taking advantage of the defense's um, you know, awesomeness. Morton hits Moses for another touchdown to go up 21 to 10. I feel like at that point, because of how great the orange crush is, when you're on the offense and you score over 20, part of of me, it was 20 to 10. They did miss. They did not. Oh, they did make the, make the extra point, which comes into play because what ends up happening is Casper has another touchdown catch towards the end of the fourth quarter for 20 to 17. I was going to say once this is my thought is when you're on that offense and you score 20, you're like, Oh, we're going to win this game. Mm -hmm. But this is why Pittsburgh or excuse me. The Raiders were so good. Was they're like, no, you're going to have to do better than that. The problem was it was too little too late. Yes. Denver was able to run out the clock. I'm just saying, like, it, it's like like we were saying, like, this defense was so good that I bet the offense gets to a point where they're just like, ah, there's no coming back to that. And it's not a huge lead. 20 points isn't shit. I no, mean, it's, I mean, the Raiders tried, but they couldn't do it. And But the defense had three turnovers. And that's yep. basically what turned the tide of really the whole game. And Denver and the Orange Crush defense – finally make the Super Bowl. Yeah, first, first Super, Super Bowl. Bowl. I want to talk about this 77 team real quick because I, I was reading something that I thought was so interesting. They make this first Super Bowl, and people in Denver, this is what I read, hold this 77 team above all other they do. teams. My dad did. This, Yes, yeah. if you were in this era, this is your team. And you would tell other people that, like, no, no, always great, whatever, whatever, whatever. This was the team It's that, the most special team. yes. It, it's it, the most special team. That's the thing that I absolutely love. 18, 17 years of being losers. Yeah. 
and it brought pride to the city. And did they eventually get the ring? No, and we'll go into that. <laughs> and we'll go into why the offense shit the bed so poorly in that Super Bowl. But yep. Everybody team, loves them. Yeah. Because they were the first... T- you, you saw... I know I'll say it again. You saw the redheaded stepchild getting the shit beat out of him year after year after year, but you stayed loyal and you stayed loving this team. And for someone like my dad, how special it must have been to watch them beat the last three Super Bowl winners yeah. in successive weeks to put you on the doorstep for a title as a city and as a franchise. That must have been just euphoric. That just must have been one of the best feelings ever just to witness because it's like Denver's finally on the map in professional sports. Yeah, but that's the sports feeling that every single fan goes for. Mm -hmm. And you don't like go in rooting for a losing team. You just end up rooting for a losing team. And then out of nowhere, it seems like you're just like, oh, shit, we're a winning team. Oh, we're a winning team. We're telling everyone to go fuck themselves. Exactly. Like, That's the best is like when you start crushing. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're going to get into the Super Bowl, which, you know, it's a it's a downer, but it's it's, it's a, a Super Bowl. That's my, that's yeah. my take. I and mean, it's funny because they were only the second team to beat the last two Super Bowl champions in a playoff run to the Super Bowl. Do you know who the first was? Because we did an episode on it. Wait, who was the first? The Miami Dolphins team that won go. that Chiefs game. <laughs> but uh, they draw Dallas in the Super Bowl, which is actually really unfortunate for them because Tom Landry knows everything there is to know about Craig Morton. And, and ha- the rest of the team does too. I was going to say, that's we see them, they, they, they gave them their last loss, last game of the season, mm-hmm. and it's kind of foreshadowing that the Cowboys really know how to beat the Broncos. They do, and... To Dallas's credit, you have Roger Staubach, you have Tony Dorsett, you have a great offensive line, you have the doomsday defense. It's not like they were slouches. No, it's almost no. like that Raiders or Raiders Buccaneers Super Bowl where Gruden's like, "Oh man, I put this offense together. I know how exactly to break it." Yeah, no, seriously, that that's a great little analogy there because that's what we see here is they just really the crush just can't get going. Well, the crush can't get going through no fault of their own. Yeah. The offense has seven turnovers, turnovers in yeah. this game. The fact that the defense only gave up 27 points, one of which was a late touchdown on a halfback option from Robert Newhouse to, I think, Golden Richards. That's incredible. 27 points with seven turnovers. I mean, there was nothing they could have done. No. there. I mean... Not to completely fault the offense because, yeah, the defense still has to make plays. But when you're giving up seven extra possessions, eventually they have to – law of averages says they have even have to kick field goals. I was going to say the real law of averages is they're going to score like at least three and a half touchdowns off of those or something like that. Or at least three and a half um, scoring opportunities. You know what I mean? So either field goal, whatever. Um, But that's the thing is like you were saying is like, they just gave the ball up too much for the defense to do anything. But when you watch that game, what you see is they never quit. That oh, defense no. never quit. Yeah. They never felt they were out of it. Even in the fourth quarter, they're only down 10 points. It's yep. like they still thought they were in the game and were just like, Jesus Christ, just put some more points on the board for us. Like we, we can't, we can score, but it's much harder for us to score yes. when we don't have the ball. Yeah, no. And that's what's unfortunate about this season is they get right to the end the defense takes them all the way and the offense just can't get them over that hill. And it's, it's sad 
because that was kind of their little window to do it. While they yep. win the division in 78 and the defense is the defense is good up until through the early 80s. That's what I read. And was. Collier coaches defense and they're still a good defense. He coaches until the end of 1988 with this team. Yeah. And we'll get into that in the next episode on the other side of the ball, but I'm just saying like he was the architect of all this. He was the mad scientist. And, you know, they make the playoffs in 78. They end up losing. Even in the early 80s, they're competitive. But by 83, the entire thing is turned back over to Elway. Yep. At Collier, still coaching guys up like Carl Albino, Rhino, Mecklenburg, and Simon Fletcher, and Dennis Smith. I mean, but this was the team. This was the defense of the team that means probably more than anything to any Denver Broncos fan over the age of probably, I'd say, 50. Yeah. That's what I, like I said, that's what I love about them is other teams almost have done more. So they've had more Super Bowl appearances, mm -hmm. if you will. But this is the team that every diehard Broncos fan will bring up. Because if they saw them, they will always bring this team up. Yeah. Hey, everybody, this is just a stock message at the end of every episode. We hope you enjoyed whatever athlete and or team that that episode was about. Just want to say, give us a quick follow on all social media. We have a YouTube channel, the Sports Experience Podcast, and we're on Instagram, Totolo Dominic and myself, C. Quinn Comedy. So give us a follow all around. Um, we're always recording right here at Angle Studio. Thank you all very much.